Hi everybody, it's uh, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. And I'm struggling with some new technology. I've got a new toy, a new improved tape recorder, I mean uh, recorder. So I'm not going to be just um, talking into my phone. Let's see if it's, the sound quality is any better. I certainly hope so. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So first up was my uh, the usual links I liked and the standout um, piece uh, this week was the CIA Sabotage Field Manual from 1941, which gives tips to CIA operatives um, how to uh, commit sabotage in various kinds. But the one that stuck with lots of people on the Internet was um, general interference with organizations and production, because it sounds uncannily like um, the CIA has infiltrated large numbers of academic departments and NGOs because they say things like, uh, make speeches, talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences. Um, or um, bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. Haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes, resolutions. It all sounds horribly familiar, so I really enjoyed that piece. There's some other good stuff on, on links I liked. Um, uh, including um, some some yet more analysis of the mistakes we made over Ebola, um, and some very nice and a very nice animation of stories about migration, which I thought was excellent. Um, next was uh, what's special about feminist research? This is Caroline Sweetman, Oxfam, one of Oxfam's gender gurus, who's been editing the Gender and Development Journal for decades. And their latest issue, which she introduced on the blog here, is um, on feminist values in research. And so they, it was a whole series of, of, of articles, um, as is the way with journals. And Caroline Hyten sort of picked out in an overall post what, what feminist va uh, researchers have in common. And she looked at, she, she sort of picked out things like context is everything. Feminist researchers are happy with complexity, ambiguity, nuance, um, that the way statistics are used is often very limited. For example, averages leave out um, uh, far as much as they include. But there is a kind of feminist movement within statistics, feminist movement within measurement. There's a feminist monitoring, evaluation and learning movement, uh, which we certainly have a lot of at Oxfam. So, so there's a real sort of uh, engagement with the whole question of measurement and statistics. Um, and Caroline pointed to sort of commitment to innovative methods, especially around participation, and the researcher giving up power to the researched. Um, I asked her in the run-up to her writing this blog, um, okay, but that a lot of that just sounds like good research. So what is there a difference between feminist research and good research? To which her answer was yes. For yeah, and she gave a couple of reasons. One, obviously it focuses, you know, feminist research focuses on the situation of women and highlights a number of areas that are overlooked by traditional research, even good research. Um, on things like feminist economics, you know, looking at the unpaid economy and the care economy. Um, and that there's a sort of uh, a, a, an intrinsic and indissoluble link between activism and research in the case of feminist research. Um, I still think that's basically good research, but we can carry on that argument forever, I think. Um, but uh, I think what's probably happened is that a lot of people who came to research have learned in other areas, have learned from feminist research. So it's therefore percolated through to other research methods. Next up, um, I've been involved for a couple of years now with a, a program called Action for Empowerment and Accountability, which is one of these big um, research consortia um, 
led by the Institute of Development Studies um, and funded by DFID. And uh, John Gaventer and Katie Oswald had the um, difficult job of summarising the first phase of three years of research. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a project to, to research how empowerment and accountability take place in fragile and conflict-affected settings. Um, they use Egypt, Mozambique, Myanmar, Nigeria and Pakistan as their main case study countries, but we also went to some other places like Tanzania. Um, and John and Katie, I thought it, it was a, it, actually they put together what for me is a bit of a model summary of a of a difficult you know uh, of a of a wide ranging piece of research. They identified eight key messages, and I'm going to talk you through them all. So one is in these fragile conflict and violence affected places, there is a, a prevalent uh, mood of fear and distrust which have to be taken into account when we talk about our ideas of accountability and empowerment, that people may just be too scared to take action or they may not trust the authorities or people in positions of power to do anything, even if they do take action. And you have to understand that. You can't just come in and say, well, this is what we do in Britain. This is why don't you do it in Myanmar or somewhere? You've got to think about the psychology of, uh, of people taking action or not taking action and how that uh, how fear shapes and, and changes the way you take action. Similarly, second lesson, I think, is you, you need to re-understand the nature of authority. There are, there are parts of Myanmar where actually the government is not in charge. The armed uh, uh, ethnic organisations are in charge um, and they are essentially the government. So you need to think in terms of public authority, not the state, not just the state. So who is in charge? Who sets the rules? Who do people respect or obey? You need to think more widely than just our normal sort of triptych of state, civil society and private sector. There are many other players in these fragile and conflict places which need to be taken into account. These settings are more turbulent and more sort of uh, uncertain. And therefore, the third finding is that windows of opportunity, critical junctures, um, sudden things suddenly become possible that weren't possible last month and may not be possible next month. So if you're working in these places, you have to be really attuned to these sudden sort of passing windows of possibility and change. Um, fourth is we don't always, you know, the, 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 the nature of people taking action in these countries is not always recognisable to uh, outsiders, you know, we we go looking for social movements, people protesting in the streets, people in all, uh, formal organisations with constitutions and accounts, and and actually it may be much more below the radar than that. It may be people through cultural associations or through just neighbourhood associations. Or there's a lot of a lot of action takes place below our radar, which we so we need to improve the quality of our radar. Um, fifth is that um, women's collective action is absolutely critical in many of these places and that this has been sort of overlooked, I think, in a lot of the research. So uh, really, some really interesting work in Egypt and elsewhere on the role of women's organisations and women's collective action as a, as a, as a channel for empowerment and accountability in, 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 in some of these places. And then the uh, uh, Gaventer and Oswald get on to the donors and they, they're basically less than... The, the, you know, the, the, the recommendation to donors is proceed with caution, look before you leave, don't jump in with your best practice from elsewhere. 
and always think that yeah, if you're going to operate in these very complex, rapidly changing situations, you need to push power and decision making as close to the front line as you possibly can. Don't think you can you know, backseat drive this from the head office because you just won't know what's going on. So a strong sort of endorsement for the whole thinking and working politically kind of approach there. And then finally, new tools that you need new research tools for understanding the political economy, for researching what's going on. I'm particularly excited about some work that Anu Joshi and Miguel Loreiro and others at IDS are leading on governance diaries, on going back and asking people repeatedly over the course of a year, how did you have any problems? How did you resolve them? So you start to uncover the ecosystem of governance in a much more bottom-up way than just one-off interviews or coming in and doing some top-down political economy analysis. So some really good, a very good report. I recommend you read it and some really interesting messages. Next up, I went back to a 2001 Harvard Business Review article uh, uh, on strategy um, recommended by uh, somebody called Paul Knox Clark. Um, and it's by Kathleen M. Eisenhart and Donald Sol. I have no idea why Americans always insist on their middle initial, by the way. If anyone could explain why Americans do and no one else does, I'd be very interested. I never say my name is Duncan J.S. Green, but this is the kind of what people do in America. Anyway, Kathleen M. Eisenhart and Donald Sol, presumably has no middle name, um, wrote a really interesting piece in 2001 called Simple Rules. And what they identified was that and this is based on private sector management studies, is that the more complex and uncertain the context is, the, the stronger the case for just having a few very simple rules, and the more unpredictable, the fewer the rules. Um, and I just thought that made absolute sense in terms of where NGOs and, and aid organisations are. And the bit that it really added, I've been talking about you know, um, <clears throat> strategic rules of thumb, for example, for a while, but they had a nice little typology about the kinds of rules that they're talking about, which I think can easily be applied to NGOs and aid organisations. So they have five kinds. They have how-to rules, which is, you know, what makes our process unique? How do we do things differently from other people? Boundary rules. So what kinds of opportunities do we pursue and what kind do we just leave to others? Priority rules. So how do we rank? You know, what's the process? We've got a bunch of opportunities which we think fit within our remit how do we set priorities amongst those timing rules so how do we time our action our jumping in our intervention in relation to the emergence of those opportunities and then exit rules so how and when do we decide to stop doing something that seems like a really useful typology for working through the rules of thumb which I think make a lot more sense than most strategic plans when you're talking about how an organisation should be working over the next few years. And then the final post this week uh, was, a, was a, a new report that came out on Friday uh, by the Fight Inequality Alliance. Um, and it's, it starts from the point of view that there's been an enormous global discussion on inequality in recent years. Um, but that's been focused on the problem. Lots and lots of you know, number crunching and graphs and Branko Milanovic and uh, all these people writing about inequality, what the problem is. A lot of policy solutions. So, you know, this is what, you know, Piketty talking about his global wealth tax or whatever. 
But this report looks at what are people doing about it on the ground? They're looking at what they see as an emerging inequality movement or movements and saying, OK, let's go talk to them. So they uh, did a survey of 170 or so activists. They did one to one interviews, in-depth interviews with 40 key inequality activists. And they try and find the shapes that are emerging in this new global inequality movement. And there's a couple of things. It's a 40 page report. It's got a lot in it. It's written by May Miller Dawkins who's an old friend of mine. But um, a few things I picked out, which I thought were particularly interesting, was how they emerge. So a lot of them emerge in struggle, um, you know, in particular moments of crisis, of, uh, of pushback, of, of struggling for survival. But others from exclusion, so groups of people who are just not seeing themselves represented, um, uh, rural, uh, rural communities or um, LB... Um, uh, LBGTQI uh, uh, groups, whatever, they're, they're sort of setting up their own organisations and they're also conventional broad-based NGOs and international NGOs working on a range of issues. Um, a lot of caution on outside support, um, so the perils of um, outsiders coming in and speaking for people rather than with or supporting other people to do their own talking and, and helping them with that. Um, but also a really interesting piece on the practicalities, how the practicalities of outside support end up reinforcing inequalities, even when, as you're trying to tackle them. There was a really nice quote from an activist in India who's one of the elite saying, well, you know, we're in New Delhi. We speak English. We've got all the jargon. We've got Skype. We've got Zoom. We've got, you know, WhatsApp. So it's just easier for a foreigner, for an outsider to talk to us than to try and talk to an activist on the ground when they don't even use phones, let alone Skype or internet. And he's very aware, or she is very aware of that, um, of that exclusion, and it's something that we need to take into account. They also had a really nice and sort of um, reassuring piece, given how gloomy a lot of people are, on examples of both holding ground and gaining ground. So, you know, where are they winning? Um, very nice sort of examples there. Um, but also a whole piece on stopping negative change which has become a major function of some of these movements is just stopping things getting worse uh, blocking new legislation which is going to exclude new groups this kind of stuff so a really useful report and with that i shall end today's rant <laughs>